several years ago, many years ago now, I was pastoring at Woodside Bible Church. We took on a, a, a church planter, missionary, and his background, his name was Igor, and his background was pretty heavy drugs all through his teenage years and into his early 20s. And Igor came to know the Lord wonderfully uh, and went off to seminary and wanted to go back to his hometown and reach the drug addicts of the inner city. And so we supported him, encouraged him, funded him, and he went back into the inner city and started a church called Resurrection Church. And it was, it was amazing to see how that church grew. He launched that church and then went outside of the city a few years later and started another church. And he's working with both of those churches now, but in the process of doing so, he's also in charge of evangelism, evangelism training for the seminary uh, in which he was trained. And it's just been fascinating to watch him, him grow. Did I tell you where he's serving? Have you heard of a country called Ukraine? He's serving and living in Kiev. And we got the word, uh, in fact, I reread the email this morning, emailed him back, but he asked us how to pray. And Igor and Susanna have several children. They live right in the city, and they had received word that they should probably evacuate. And so the plan was, and, and they were given a free house and all expenses paid in Romania. And so Igor was making plans to move Suzanne and the children to Romania when he would return to Kiev and, and, and minister to the people there and help them during one of the most challenging times, as you can imagine. Uh, in the email, he talked about the buildup on the border that we've been reading about and, and listening to on a news broadcast and so forth. And then his wife said to him, no, I don't think God wants us to leave. And God wants us to stay here. And so the family's staying in Kiev, trying to minister, trying to lead, um, and trying to um, be the church that God wants them to be during a time of tremendous, tremendous uh, anxiety and perhaps fear. He mentioned uh, um, one of the prayer requests. He says, pray that our church would not be filled with fear but would be filled with boldness. Isn't it interesting? That's the same prayer request you find in the early part of the book of Acts when the apostles were under such duress. They prayed not for the release of tension or anxiety, but they prayed that we would have boldness, that we would be the people God wants us to be during this time. So I'm going to direct your attention to Isaiah 43. Isaiah chapter 43. I'll give you a little bit of background, but the theme there is... Uh, we don't need to be afraid. We just don't need to be afraid. Um, the, so the message that I want you to catch this morning is so, so important. Because the words I'm going to share with you are not the words you're going to hear on CNN or Fox News. These words are not going to come out of Washington. In fact, it'll be just the opposite. Do we have need to, uh, to be anxious today? Do we, uh, have you listened to the news lately? And some of you perhaps have watched your 401k, your retirement accounts, uh, these last couple of weeks take a nosedive. And maybe you're wondering, in this unstable world, what is stable anymore? The answer to that is God. God is stable. I love the words of that uh, song, uh, on, on Christ the solid rock I stand, 
All other ground is sinking sand. And so the background for Isaiah 43 is that in the history of the children of Israel, the northern tribes were carried off into captivity in 722 B.C. because of their idolatry, uh, their worship of other gods, uh, their disobedience to God. Uh, The northern kingdom remained faithful a little longer, um, and, and as a result, they... They stayed as a kingdom um, until about 601 to about 586 B.C. They started going in three different uh, deportations to the country of Babylon. Jeremiah was preaching during this time in the southern kingdom, and he was preaching, and he just said, folks, we've got to repent. We've got to turn back to God, because if we don't, God's going to bring tribulation. God's going to bring discipline. Uh, instead of listening to him, they threw him in a pit. Uh, they called him names, um, and they did everything but follow his leadership. And as a result, the time was coming, and, uh, and God, in, in the chapter 42, is pretty harsh in saying, this is what's going to happen because of your disobedience. And then in chapter 43, let me, let me take you to some, uh, how about verse number 11? I... I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no stranger, no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver you from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Listen to this. For your sake I will send Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships of which they rejoice. Those words had to catch the ears and the minds of the children of Israel, the southern kingdom. They said, what are you talking about? God is going to use a heathen nation like Babylon to come in and take over us, Babylon who is known and take their pride in their ships. Um, and their armies, God is going to use them? How could that be? Verse 18, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, he he turns from uh, chapter 42, which is a a, a chapter that's that's hard and it's harsh and it's, uh, it's discipline, to words of consolation at the beginning of verse, or chapter 43. And I'm going to read the the, the verses uh, uh, a couple at a time. And I'm going to give you three reasons why we don't need to be afraid. Three reasons. But I want to do something a little bit different this morning, differently so that we can remember them. Because, again, you're not going to be reminded of these on news broadcasts. Let me give you the first reason. Because God created, formed, redeemed, and calls us by name. I'm wondering this morning if this section here, this half the church, if we could memorize that. Can we, there are a lot of words there. Why don't we need to be afraid? Because God created us, formed us, redeemed us, and calls us by name. You read the words if you want to, okay? We're going to do this enough that hopefully we'll remember. Okay, let me ask you the question again, or let me just say, we don't need to be afraid because 
Outstanding. Thank you. You know what's coming next, don't you? They set the bar high. Can we try it one more time? We don't need to be afraid because... Let's look at those four and break them down a little bit. He created us. He's talking to the children of Israel. Uh, and we just said the word us. We as New Testament believers can align ourselves with the Old Testament community of faith because we have also chosen, or God chose us, and we're following him. He's our God. He's our king. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. And so for the children of Israel, when he said, I've created you. That takes us back to Abraham, where God said to Abraham, when Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, and God said to him, come out of your country and out of your kindred and come to a land that I'm going to show you. And the Bible tells us in the book of Joshua that Abram was a, a polytheistic person. He was worshiping many gods. But that day, he heard the voice of a god he'd never heard before. And what did he do? By faith, he stepped out, and he followed. And he came to a land, and God gave him a promise in Genesis chapter 12, as well as in Genesis chapter 15. And he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, all the kingdoms of the world are going to be blessed. Your children will be like the sands of the sea, or like the stars of the sky. In other words, impossible to number. Many, many, many. And I'm going to give you this land. And Abram at the time had to be thinking, I'm old. My wife is old. How are you going to do the ch children thing and the, the offspring? And, and they waited and waited and waited. And then you get to chapter 15. And God said, or, and Abram said, God, how about if I help you out? How about if my servant, Eliezer, uh, takes, this, takes my spot? and bears a child with Sarah. And, and God says, God doesn't need any help, by the way, does he? We have to be patient and have to obey him. He's long-suffering, and we, we, we admire that so much about our God. But he doesn't need our help. And, and God in that chapter said, Abram, I'm going to make you a promise. And what he did is, is fascinating, because he, would, he, took, he took animals, and they took those animals and, and uh, some sheep and some oxen, and they cut them in half. They took birds as well, but they didn't cut the birds in half. So these, they were sacrificed, but he said, and they were put opposite each other. So there was a pathway in between them. So you had half the animal here, half the animal here, half the animal here, half the animal here. And the purpose of that is God was going to make a covenant with him and the, 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 the process of and the way they did it at that time, and the word for cut is the word karat, and it means to, to cut a, We use the same, same language today. We cut a deal. The same language today. They, they were cutting a covenant. And the way it worked, Abram went into a deep sleep, and God, represented by a pot and a flame, went through the midst of those two rows of animals. The purpose of that... He's basically saying, I will keep my covenant. And for parties to walk through that, those, the row of animals like that, they were saying, if we don't keep our part of the covenant, may we be like those animals. Let us be killed. It's interesting here. 
Abram wasn't asked to walk through because this was an unconditional covenant. God walked through. And he says to Abram and to his people, I'm going to keep my covenant, and I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be carried off into captivity. You'll be spent 400 years, but I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to redeem you. When God says he created us, he created them. And he stuck with the children of Israel all through the years. And now is coming a time where they're going to be carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. But he's reminding them, you're mine. I created you. I love what God says about us. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you saved through faith. But verse number 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the works that he's already planned for us to do. We're his, and he's ours. Peter reminds us we're a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a great nation. That's who we are. We're created. So we don't need to be afraid because, oh, you've got to be ready, folks. Come on. Because he created us? Okay, we'll go through the, the, the others more quickly. He formed us. We're uniquely and wonderfully made in his image. He has redemptive rights to us because of creation and because of redemption, the cross. He formed us. We were not a mistake. Jeremiah talks about that, and God reminds him, I formed you in, my, in your mother's womb, Jeremiah chapter 1. What about redeemed? He redeemed us. John referenced that this morning so beautifully. It means to buy out of bondage, to buy out of bondage. In other words, a, a ransom was paid. For us, the, the, the Greek words in the New Testament, there are a couple of them, but one of them means uh, agorazo or ex-agorazo, and it means to be purchased from the marketplace. Can you imagine? Agora means market or marketplace. Can you imagine in the marketplace um, there will be different blocks, and there, there may be a person on that block, an individual who is going to be sold into slavery um, because of a debt they owed or, uh, or, or some reason that they're on that slave box. So people come along and check to see if their teeth are good. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But that's what God is saying. I saw you on the slave block, and I bought you out of bondage. He redeemed them. We're redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. I have a distant relative in uh, Germany, and very wealthy in the 19, early 1980s, he sold his shares in the company business for uh, $300 million, early 80s. In the late 90s, he was living in Hamburg. Hamburg had, he lived on a street, he had a house, and he had another house down the street uh, where he did his office work. He's a philanthropist. He was kidnapped and held for ransom. The, the kidnappers wanted $20 million for his ransom, and the family paid it. He was 
he was in a, held for 30 days in a cellar. He later wrote a book on it called In the Cellar. Uh, he's an agnostic, and even going through that, it didn't bring him any closer to God, it doesn't seem. He was, he was released after, some time, after 30 days, but I thought about that. 20 million. How much would your family pay for you? And you would say, not 20 million, but they'd, they'd pay whatever they had to. Ransom. We live in a society today that values people by their worth in terms of can you run fast, can you shoot a basketball, can you score 30 points a game, um, can you throw, throw a football. Um, value is determined by that. Folks, our value is not determined by anything we do. Our value is determined by the cross of Christ. We're redeemed by something much more than $20 million. The precious son of Jesus, of God, Jesus, came to this earth. He shed his blood and he died that we may live with him forever. That's valuable. So he, he, he redeemed us. He bought us out of bondage. And the Bible also says he calls us by name. That's a special caring relationship that the shepherd has with the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As New Testament believers, we know that he calls us by name. I think the sweetest word in the English language is our own name. We love to be called by our name. There'll be times when my wife will call me honey. Anybody else like that? My wife call you honey? But trumping that is my own name when she calls me by name. There's something very meaningful to that, and to know that God calls us by name. Notice what he says here, reading from, again, chapter 43. But now thus saith the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. He says, I call you by name to the degree that whatever you're going through, and he uses two things that are often used in the history of the children of Israel to talk about difficulties. He's using fire and water. When you go through the water, I'll be with you. And for the children of Israel, at this point in time, they had to be thinking, you're going to be carrying us into captivity by the Babylonians. We get that. It's not, it's our sin. We get that. They had to be reminded of two other occasions when they went through the water. One of them was when they came out of Egypt and they were trapped by the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and God miraculously opened that up and they passed through the waters. Forty years later, approximately, they were up against another a river, water, and that was the Jordan River during flood season, and God miraculously opened up that as the, as the priests led through the Ark of the Covenant, and they all walked through on dry land. So they, when he says, when you walk through the water, I'm going to be with you, and they knew it. They knew it from their own history. When you go through the fire, you'll not be, be burned. 
And I wonder if they were remembering the story of those three Hebrew men found in the book of Daniel when, you, when we were in the fire. Remember they said they were going to be cast in the fire because they wouldn't worship the image? And they said, you can cast us in the fire, but our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship the image. And remember in the fire, they were not burned, they were not singed, and they were not alone. For one appeared like unto the Son of Man. So he's saying to them, you're going to be carried off into captivity. But you have to understand that whether it be water or whether it be fire, I'm going through it with you. And so we don't need to be afraid because God says so. And he gives us three reasons. And the first one is, I'm prepping you now, okay? And the first one is... Okay, so, so important. There's a second reason we don't need to be afraid. Are you guys ready? It's a little easier because he loves us. Can you handle that one? You don't even need to read that one, do you? We don't need to be afraid because he loves us. Let's look at the verses that talk about that. 43 uh, notice verse number three. For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, people in exchange for your life. So again, he's saying, you don't be afraid, because I love you. I love you. Those words, they seem so trite. And I pastored a church for 28 years, and I wish, I wish there were a way I could have said those words that people would have, have, have truly understood them. That God loves us. And we did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. He loves us. It's not because of something that we've done. He says, you're precious and honored in my sight. I love you so much, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give people and give nations, Cush and Sheba, in exchange for you. Because I love you. I've illustrated with this many times before with the word precious. You are precious in my sight. The word, Hebrew word appears 10 or 11 times in the Old Testament. And it just means treasured or of great value. God says, I love you. You are treasured and of great value. If we were entertaining people at our house, having dinner, and the table's all set, then two or three couples come. We've got four pastors and their wives coming for dinner on a Tuesday night. But if we had, had dinner and we sat around the table and we talked, and then it was time for everyone to leave, and people said, well, let me help you clean up. I said, no, 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 I'll get it. And then, uh, then afterwards, they're all gone. We said our goodbyes on the porch. We're walking back into the kitchen, and, and I could say to my wife, I'll, I'll clean up. But on the table, you know, if they're special guests, or all the, the fancier type plates and so forth, or maybe serving dishes that she's... Uh, 
been handed down to her from parents, grandparents, great-grandparents from the other country, from Switzerland. So I'll get it, honey. I'll clean up. You work so hard. And she, would, she could be very firm and very loving, say, don't touch anything. <laughs> Why? Because those are precious. That serving dish has never seen a dishwasher. It's very valuable. May not be to anybody else, but it's very valuable to her. And God says, you are valuable. And I love you. You are precious in my sight. Let me share four quick things about this love. His love came first. First John chapter 4.19, maybe if you grew up in church world, you memorized it when you were in vacation Bible school or as a kid. We love him because he first loved us. However, in that verse, the way it's translated there, we love him because he first loved us, it almost seems reciprocal. He loves and we love him back. But the word him should not be there. We love because he first loved us. That changes the meaning and elevates the, the whole ability we have to love because God loved us. We have the capacity to love because God loved us, and he loved us first. Secondly, his love is unconditional. We sang in one of the songs this morning the words from Romans chapter 8, the last few verses, what can separate us from the love of God? Can height their depth? Nothing. Or anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And over the years, you've heard it said probably many, many times, there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any more or any less. His love is unconditional. His love is immeasurable. The Apostle John, when he was writing First John chapter 3, uses a, a, a Greek idiom that's impossible to translate into English. But what he's basically saying is, from what world does the love of God come from that I could be called a child of God? In other words, he's, he's just saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. How God could love us so much that he could call us his children. Folks, we don't need to be afraid. Gotcha. We don't need to be afraid because God loves us. God loves us. And he loves us unconditionally. The Bible tells uh, in the book of Proverbs, he said, there, there's a, there's, there aren't many things worse than an unloved wife. In other words, uh, a wife who's not shown that she's loved. Is God's love for us demonstrated? In a million ways. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he's constantly demonstrating his love in ways that we recognize and probably a lot of ways we don't even recognize. We don't need to be afraid because we have a God who knows us and still loves us. You ready to review? Okay, then we'll do the last point. And then we'll go over lunch. We don't need to be afraid because God said so. And he gives us three reasons. Number one, 
No, 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 no. You, you know, he loves us, but you say that, you have to sit over here. Okay? You're in the middle. We don't need to be afraid because. Excellent. Please don't forget that ever. Ever. Write it down. Remind yourself because no one else will. He, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. Reason number two, because God loves us. Here's a third one. Can we do this one together? Because God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. The children of Israel, let me read the text first, and then we'll, uh, let me try to explain it. Um, starting in verse number uh, five, again he says, third time, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The children of Israel had to be wondering, God, you made us a promise. You promise us a land. And they'll quote Genesis chapter 12, and they'll quote Genesis chapter 15. You, get, you promise us a land, you promise us a blessing, and you promise us an inheritance. What about the land thing? We're leaving this land and being carried off to Babylon. Will we ever return? There's a, one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 137. The children of Israel were gathered in Babylon along one of the rivers of Babylon, and they were lamenting. And they say, if we ever forget Jerusalem, may our right arm lose its cunning, and may our tongue cleave to the roof of our mouth. In other words, that land that God had promised them was so important that being removed from it, they said we'd rather lose our right arm and be in a place where we couldn't even talk if we forget Jerusalem. And would God, what about your promise? You made a promise to us. And God says to them, there'll be a day coming just like they were going to be 400 years in captivity in Egypt. They're going to be 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But you're going to come back again. I'm going to bring you from the north and the south and from the east and from the west. And we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen in our time where God is bringing Jews back to the land. God always keeps his promises. He did to them. And if you know Jesus as Savior, he'll do the same for you. Let me just list several of these promises and there are hundreds and hundreds of promises. He promises salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's saying to us, when you have salvation, you have that security, and no one can pluck you out of my hand. All things will work together for good. Have you heard that before? It's true. It doesn't mean all things are good. All things work together for good. And in the next verse, he can explains that. He says, whom he predestined, whom he knew ahead of time whom he called and foreknew. And it goes on to say, and then he redeems and glorifies, justifies and glorifies. So he's, he's saying, from, I have a plan for you. 
And that plan for you started before the world began when you were predestined and I knew you. All the way to the time you're glorified and in my presence. So he's, he's spanning thousands of years with you in mind. And then he's saying to you, I've got all this that's going to work out. But in that course of your 70 or 80 or 90 years where you're on this earth, you're going to go through some difficulties. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because look to your, the beginning and look to the end. You are predestined and you're going to be glorified. I've got a plan. And all these little things that don't seem so little at the time are going to work out for your good. You don't need to be afraid. A couple more promises here. He promises new life in Christ. We're new creatures. Old things have passed and new have become. He promises spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3. He promises to finish what he started. Where he said, being confident is the very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he promises rest. He promises rest. To, and the only verses in the New Testament where Jesus, in the Gospels, where Jesus gives us a window into his own heart. Where he says, come unto me all you who labor and are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, or my teaching upon you, and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he promises heaven. He promises heaven. So what are we going to do with this? You'll be bombarded this week with news that reminds you that we live in an unstable world. And you need to know you have a stable God. And you need to we need to, to, first of all, trust him. Those verses that I read and all those reasons only apply to those who know him. And it's, it's, it's important, it's incumbent upon each one of us to respond to the grace and the gift of God by understanding that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that God saw us at our point of need and sent Jesus into this world to bring salvation. If you've not trusted him as your Savior yet, that is the next step. If you've not trusted him yet, I'm not, not trying to make you afraid, but you've got an appointment with God that you're not ready for. Give your heart and life to Jesus. So that's the beginning. Make sure we know him. Secondly, let's pray and remind ourselves of these truths, that we worship and serve a stable God. He's our refuge and strength and very present help in time of trouble. And let us share that good news with others.